raise a family, that they have some of the same opportunities that me and my wife. You agreed that they are, we need to see them as a terrorist organization. On a private cloud server, yes or no? To love country, to love God, and to try to do the right thing. Worked for the nation and the interests of the people. <laughs> Welcome back to the Fresh Freedom Podcast, your podcast with freedom-loving freshman members of Congress. I'm Eric Burleson from Missouri, and I'm joined today by Representatives Josh Burkeen from Oklahoma, Andy Ogles from Tennessee, and our special guest is Russ Vogt um, from the Center for Renewing America. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we got to meet you, I think, before we were sworn in. We got to... Um, back in November, right after the election. And so um, it was it was really neat for me because I, I remember seeing you on TV. You were a fighter for the Trump administration. Well, thanks. I mean, we had a great time uh, working for, for President Trump. And uh, it's also fun to see the new, new uh, freshmen that come in and are ready to take the world by fire and to see what you guys have already accomplished. So uh, it's fun to get to know you and certainly to be on your on your podcast. So tell us a little bit how you, your journey to get to this place. How do, you know what was your? Well, I spent twelve years on the Hill. Uh, came from Wheaton College, worked in uh, majored in political science. Spent twelve years on the Hill, generally working for members like you, those in the fight. And then I wanted to take what I had learned and share it with the grassroots because I felt that you could have more of an impact trying to get one or two members to vote the right way if you could take that kind of high information and turn it around, and there's this view that grassroots aren't, aren't, can't, aren't smart enough for that, and I find that to be totally uh, untrue and, 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 and slanderous. Uh, and I did that for six years, uh, doing grassroots organizing as a policy person. Um, President Trump gets elected, and then I went to work at Office of Management Budget, and I was always a budget guy. Um, and next thing you know, you're, I'm getting nominated for deputy and, and over time the, the director uh, position. And uh, it was a great chance to see the executive branch, get a feel for what must be done to save the country. Uh, and then, you know, leaving, we thought we had a huge agenda for the second term, but there was also things that needed to happen on the outside. Uh, things that you needed a, a new institution to make sure that the corrective that I thought that I think 2016 was to the powers that be here in Washington, D.C., don't have a chance to go back to the way business as usual occurred. Um, you all have kind of taken the mantle and, 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 and done an incredible job at that in the first few months, but we need more of that, and that's what our, our center attempts to do. So, Russ, uh, a lot of people watching this, they'll be like, OMB, what's OMB? And so, you know, for those of us that do know, it's like, well, that's, that's a big deal. Can you break down what, what you did? Is, sure. is Trump giving you that opportunity to represent him, and how big of a uh, field of view that you had? So the Office of Management and Budget is what OMB stands for. I think it's easier to tell people it's the budget office. But it's all budget issues. You can kind of turn anyone's funding on or off. Uh, it's all regulations, uh, anything that's government-wide execution. So the wall, you have Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense. That's all coming through Office of Management and Budget. But really what is set up is the statutory tools for a president, if he knows how to use it to be able to deal with the deep state or the administrative state. And that's something that the Trump administration was increasingly learning how to do. And uh, you know, we were the, the tip of the spear in that sense because you know, if we know something's happening, right. we can turn it off. So for every new uh, rule you wanna propose, bureaucracy, eliminate two. That was one of them, right? And we averaged about five or six. 
Um, and you know, explain that. You average about five or six. So the president uh, came into office and said, I'm going to have a two for one for any regulatory uh, agenda that someone needs to do because it's, you know, Congress passes and says you got to do a regulation. We're going to repeal two that are that are part of our deregulatory agenda. And we consistently just overachieved on that front because the president loved to do deregulatory yeah. policy. Uh, he'd ask you, 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 did you, you know, get rid of that, those regulations causing, you know, the, the washing machines to take forever or the, you know, the dishwasher to take forever. And it's or just, the, the multiple flushes on the, exactly. the low flow toilet. And I just think to myself, how does he know so much about the, 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 <laughs> the cycles of a dishwasher? And yet I'm thinking to myself, you know, I have, it does take a lot longer than it did growing up. So there was, there was, he was very passionate about that agenda. Um, and those were all things that we were facilitating and pushing and prodding the, the agencies to do. Most people don't realize that a lot of these decisions are being made not by Congress on these rules. These are decisions that somebody sitting in a cubicle, unelected, is making a decision. And, well, uh, this is the problem, right? And you're, you think about the Constitution, Article 1, Article 2, the president. And the reality is that Congress has ceded its, its lawmaking authority, made your job less interesting, made the executive branch too interesting, in some respects, but you know, one of the things I would deal with, and I don't think we've got any one from from some of the corn states here, but I would I would ethanol would consume so much of our time an issue like that where the Congress just basically says, hey, you guys go figure it out, hit the right blend, and you'd have all of this, you know, this policy legislating behind closed doors, mm -hmm. and no one would ever know it, and it's not transparent, it's not on the on the floor of the House and the Senate. It's not democratic, other than the president being elected, for sure. Uh, but that's something that I think we've got to get a handle of if we're going to save the country from what I think is the central threat, which is a, a woke and weaponized administrative state that has this power. And it really is a congressional imperial Congress type structure. The rank and file don't have the power, but the committee barons do. The leadership does. And that's why I think, you know, some of the things that you've been doing to arrest control from these must-pass bills and force fights on the House floor have been so critical. And, and I know I'm peppering with questions, but, I, you know, I know the Freedom Caucus knows um, how invaluable you've been. Um, even the term woke and weaponized is something that uh, has got your insignia next to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. many of us so is been... that like you coined that phrase? Can you, can you take credit for that? Well, I'm not in the business of taking credit, but it's something that we uh, we we'll give do. you credit. Center for Renewed America has had a big, which you had, has had a huge um, input in some of the numbers that we've been utilizing in the Freedom Caucus, and and you're kind of a rock star among this this group of us. And I was struck at the head of the year um, with your letter. Your letter started off with something that a lot of people don't do, and they're crunching numbers. You actually bought, brought for Center for Renewed America a biblical admonition, which you actually talked about. It's either I think it's First Samuel, mm -hmm. but you quoted a scripture where it's, where it's Samuel uh, coming to the people of Israel and saying, "You want a king, but let me tell you, as I've prayed about this and what the Lord's spoken to me, what's spoken to my heart, you get a king, he's going to take the best of your crops, he's going to take the best of your uh, uh, your produce, he's going to take your children, your your the best of everything. It's just really what you want. You need to know what you're going into." And uh, you, you ascribe that and say that government, it's almost like what Washington said. It's, it's not reason. It's not eloquence. It's, it's force. Like it's either a, a dangerous servant or a fearful master. Uh, government is likened unto that. And, and, you, and so I thought that was really...
really great that you took your organization and, and brought forth a biblical admonition. And, and uh, coming from Wheaton College, I think you probably have a faith element to you. No, we do. And we think, you know, one of our main three correctives that the right and as a result the nation has lost, and this gets into 2016, is we've been too secular, too imperialistic, and too economic. Um, and, and as a result, we've been really off on a lot of different things and, and have not been able to have a coherent strategy and a coherent worldview about what it means to be a nation. So we are looking for opportunities. You know, when's the last time in a political debate you heard actual scripture being talked about? So we're always looking for data, for, for points of emphasis on that. But really, when with the terms of the budget that you mentioned, our view is that the right has lost focus on this bureaucracy that's not just uh, bad and wasteful and something we can't afford or the wrong role for the federal government. It's actively harmful to the people that you represent. Yeah. Uh, it's the Environmental Protection Agency that puts a Navy jet, 77-year-old Navy veteran in jail for 18 months because he built four ponds on his ranch to fight wildfire. It's a Department of Labor that shuts down a consignment uh, business or tries to because she gives out uh, free discounts for people that are volunteering at her shop so that they could have clothing for their kids. Uh, that's the Department of Labor. We're not even getting to the Department of Justice. So our view is that, and I saw this in the administration, if you go agency by agency, it's woke. The bureaucrats aren't just like big government FDRs, LBJ type liberals. They really? are trying to Put, they're trying to divide the country on the basis of a woke agenda. And they're also aimed in, at the American people in a way that is fundamentally harmful. And so we've tried to get people's attention to say the only way you're going to deal with that is to defund it. And so there's a lot of things that we could do to get our fiscal house in the, under control. In my view, we've got to do the, the, the most important thing is to defund that bureaucracy. And in doing so, we'll save the country fiscally. And that's really kind of been the drum that we've been beating for the last several months, really since December when we put that, that budget out. Yeah, so, you know, if you look back, there's, there's no doubt that under the Trump administration, America was better off, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's domestic policy, whether it's the economy. I mean, just really across every metric, right, uh, compared to the Biden administration. It's an absolute disaster across the spectrum. When you look to 24... Um, you know, regardless of the viewers or, or whatever their perspective is, I believe Trump will be the nominee, uh, and I think he, he will win. Now, full disclosure, I've endorsed Trump. Trump is, I'm one of his first endorsements in this next cycle, so I, I have that bias, I understand. But Trump wins. Uh, he calls you up and says, assuming hypothetically you would accept a position, I need you back at OMB. What are the three things that you have to do in the first six months to right the ship, to course correct, to save America? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of ifs in there, but and I do. I I, I was I think his first uh, former cabinet official to get out and and reendorse and endorse him heading into this race as well. And so I'm really supportive of what he's trying to do because I've seen up front at the resolute desk his ability to break paradigms, which I think we're we need a lot more breaking yeah. the paradigms in where Very we are. True. So I'm I'm all for that. I I would say that the things that I think are most critical are to seize control of the administrative state. Uh, as soon and earlier po as possible to make sure that you don't have these agencies that think that they're independent, mm -hmm. um, that Congress has just said, hey, you know, y y we don't really want the legislative authority. We're going to give it to you. But you don't actually work for the president. We, 
none of that's constitutional. None of that's reflected in that founding document. And we've got to bring that back in. That'll have a, a ton of implications, everything from economic policy to public health. But that's going to be something that you've got to do in those first, you know, first several weeks. I think there's a project I was listening to on a podcast that's called the 2025 Project, mm -hmm. where the goal is to identify, you know, who who's, you know, if, if Trump gets elected, who who do, who's going to get axed and who who do you replace him with? I'm a part of that initiative. Uh, Heritage is running that, and they've asked me to partner with them. And I'm, I'm really taking my my role is not necessarily to find people that are going to be picked for these. Uh, so there are folks on that project that will do that. Largely, the new president will do that. But my view is that it, personnel is really important, but it's not everything. And that is, you could have the right person that doesn't know the right paradigms. And doesn't like I, what I've found is being in institutions is institutions shape you. If you're not cognizant of how they're shaping you, mm -hmm. you are going to be shaped by the institution, even if you're the best person. It's why we lose so yeah. many great members of Congress after you know ten years or so. The system breaks down, and they're still going to church. They're still in a small group. They're still great people, but the institution is is working on them every single day. They become cheerleaders for the very agencies they were supposed exactly, to be. Exactly, exactly. And next thing you know, you're at this meeting and you're like, well, you don't think that. Why are you saying that? And you've, and that's why we want to pull things into the White House, the administration, because agencies get captured. And uh, I, I, I knew it at my agency. Like I had been thinking about OMB and for a long time. I had, I had done a ton of reading and I had convictions, I had hypotheses that, that turned into convictions about how the place should be run. And one of those was that, that decision about turning on and off the money that, uh, that in terms of being a good steward of taxpayer resources, that previously had been done by careers. And, and really the way that OMB had developed, a policy official, a political appointee didn't make that call. And we changed that. And they came to me and said, you're going to ruin the institution. You're going to, you're going to ruin the, the institution that you've wanted to work at your whole life. And I said, no, it won't. it's not going to happen that way. And it didn't happen that way. And next thing you know, we had entire new vistas of accountability that if, if we had done that earlier in the administration, we would have been able to know and, and, and have much more opportunities to have a, presidential, a President Trump view on the world from a policy perspective. Yeah, and I think that from the Maria, how do you say it? Bartiroma. 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 <laughs> say that Bartiroma. Three times. <laughs> Bartiroma. The, from the interview that Trump had with her recently, he, I was, I thought it was great. He, he was talking about if he was going to go back in, he's not going to make the same, he's not going to be naive. Yeah. He's not going to, he's going to go in and, uh, and know what to do immediately. Well, I mean, and, and on that note, you know, when you, you know, regardless of, of anyone's position, whether it's the speaker's fight or the debt ceiling fight or the, the fight we just had over the NDAA, you know, anytime you, uh, you know, stand up and kind of raise a fuss over accountability, that's a key word when you're talking about taxpayer dollars. Like we're stewards of those dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you get looked at funny like you're an alien from Mars or something. It's like, wait a minute, you know, whether you're for or against, you know, let's say the conflict in Ukraine, there still should be, what's the mission statement? What's the end game? You know, 
I think it's a logical question to ask, is there a path to peace? If so, what does that look like? You know, there's a lot of things you put on the whiteboard, a lot of uh, questions that you want to kind of sketch out to know possible answers to. But then this idea that, you, that as Congress, we should just write blank checks on that particular policy item because of freedom and liberty. Look, I'm all about freedom and liberty, but I'm also about accountability. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got a porous border. You know, we got yeah. fentanyl flooding our streets. Uh, you know, we, we got debt out the wazoo. I mean, crime, rampant crime. I got veterans that can't get services. Forgive me. It's okay if you want to paint your cabinets, but if your roof is leaking, I would recommend fixing your roof first. And I think that's where America is as a country. Like our roof is leaking. And when I mean roof, I mean our border. I mean our veterans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't be the world police anymore. And again, I'm not against those policies, but it's got to be in the right priority, mm-hmm. the right pecking order, but it all gets back to that word accountability. Yeah, no question. And I'm, you know, I am opposed to those policies. I feel like that's one of those 50-year paradigms in terms of our approach to Europe that we've gotten wrong. And as a result, we are our entire political class here in DC has brain worms when it comes to how to <laughs> how to properly assess our interests. I'm and, gonna work that into an interview, by the way. Yeah, just I'm yeah. gonna say brain worms. Well, and we, just know that it I'm referencing <laughs> this. There you go. <laughs> So, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. And, you know, that's one of those things. If you don't recognize properly the world, what you're dealing with, there's not, it's not the Soviet Union. It's mm-hmm. not. And so our, the way that we've approached Europe and the world is different in this. And there may be some things that we need to do and others. But um, that's one of the things that you're going to find in this town is that you always look like an alien. Mm-hmm. Because I remember coming out of the administration and... Uh, I was warning against inflation and everyone looked at me as if like inflation is dead. It's never going to happen ever again. And you're like, have you read an, an economy, an economics right, book anytime right. soon? You know, <laughs> and like this just, just happens. It's, you know, and lo and behold, that's what happens. And we had, you know, 40 year highs of inflation. And so it's just another example of the way these things operate uh, you need accountability, and you need people that are willing to temporarily look like they are aliens, but they have truth on their side. And the reality is that your your voters, your constituents, the communities across the country know what time it is in this country, and they're looking for that. Uh, they're looking for that kind of leadership with it, with everything they've got because they know the urgency. And in, you know, I think they look at a house. Our houses are burning down. And our political class is like measuring the drapes in the second floor. You realize the whole first floor is burning down? That's our communities. That's our schools. Those are our families. That's what we see in social media. Our kids are on TikTok. And you're just fiddling around with, you know, funding some war in Ukraine. Like, what on earth are you thinking? I think that's exactly what you're saying. Well, not, not to get too, like, in the weeds on a policy issue, but I had an amendment to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, right? Uh, it was Lend-Lease. And, again, that's very wonky, very nerdy, but simply stated, you know, we give them equipment, and we give it, give it to them on lease terms. So they'll mm-hmm. pay us back over time, right? Well, the problem is, is that as it pertains to Ukraine, there are no terms. So, in other words, the president can just ignore it, and it's a gift. Okay, well, if we're going to gift them the equipment, Congress should, that's an appropriation, Mm -hmm. right? And instead, what's happened is we've given that authority, like you said earlier, to the executive branch. I have a job to do. 
We have a job to do. If we're going to gift Ukraine equipment, then let's have the courage to stand up and say, you know, that, that, that tank over there that costs millions and millions of dollars that we're going to do under Lend-Lease, it's actually a gift. Let's just call it a freaking gift. Mm -hmm. And But again, we fleece the American people. Meanwhile, our tax, taxpayer dollars, it's over $40 billion now, has gone to Ukraine. Meanwhile, I got veterans that don't get benefits. I've got illegal aliens coming into the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our priorities are backwards. And again, I think, you know, my record, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been very outspoken, but then that, that also means you get a target on your back as you have a target on your back. Uh, so what's that been like? You know, you, you've left the administration. Uh, you've been outspoken on fiscal policy. You've really supported the freedom movement, us, on a number of occasions. Uh, well, you know, interesting. I went, when I went through the confirmation process, um, I had the experience of Senator Sanders calling me out for basically believing uh, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, you know, whatever Good for you, what, you know, <laughs> everyone knows that they go to a sporting event and they know John three sixteen, and that's essentially what I was getting called out in terms of being a bigot for. And so, wow. the interesting thing about that uh, is that once you go through the fire of people calling you the names, they're trying to cancel you. You you make it through that, and you know what are you, what are they going to do to you? And so the reality is that anytime you're over the target, they're going to call you names. They're going to call you a racist, a bigot, an appeaser, a Christian nationalist. Uh, that's, that's their game. That's 150 years of their game. And what we have to do is actually lean in and just say, look, not say I, I, your name I'm going to wear, but I don't care that you called me the name. I don't, my kids know that I'm not one of those. I don't care if it's on the Internet. It's not who I am. We have the moral high ground. Your definition, your assessment of me is not what controls me. And yeah. when we have that attitude, which happens to be the same attitude that parents showing up at school boards have with regard to what's being taught in their, in their schools, when we have that, we are going to save the country because that is literally what has caused us to be, have failure for 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, you know, it, honestly a blessing. Uh, in terms of, you know, Senator Sanders meant it for, for ill, God meant it for good. And our center is trying to arm those people that have similar opportunities because God's given them an opportunity to be responsible. Uh, you know, as I was, my, I was finishing up at Wheaton College and uh, I had finished my major and I was just taking, you know, some classes from good professors and one of them was on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, and Bonhoeffer said, you know, we can't be, the world's just too far gone for us to be armchair critics. You know, we've got, to be responsible is to actually put yourself in the arena and make, and, and, and go down fighting, which is it, with all of the decisions and the wisdom that's needed to do that, and come out the, the other side, you're not always going to be right. You're not always going to have played it the right way. But that's what it means to be afforded an opportunity to stand and be responsible for history as it, as it sits on your shoulders. And that's what we've got to rally our side and thus the nation to be able to recognize the states. And when we have statesmanship like that at your level, in the administration level, at the grassroots level, uh, we're going to find that we can save this country. And I, I, I really believe that. The, um, there's a quote that I saw on social media uh, to your point a few weeks ago, and it said, um, uh, in the war of good and evil, 
if you remain silent, your life might be easier, but your kids won't. And it's, it's all likened to a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote that says, um, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. Yeah. Um, to to uh, find out, are we uh, um, find our identity in, in, uh, in one or in the audience of many? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, you know, and um, our founders would have known that duty is ours, results are God's. And then we can sleep well at night. There's no fear. Um, and, you know, you pray for favor um, and success. And, and, uh, but I think it, what I found is if, if you, if you, courage begets courage. And if you keep leaning in and you find every opportunity to lean forward, um, there's going to be more and more people that find that attractive. And I think that's, that's what we try to do. I mean, we joke around with you all. Like we say, look, we're going to try. We're going to try to inc- push you into oncoming traffic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is an opportunity that's I historic. Never do that. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but we're going to do everything we can to clear that first lane so that no one's getting run over. Because you know, uh, when you when you haven't been here, you don't know the opportunities that exist. Well, so to speak to that, at early on in the year, you, I remember having conversations. You were excited about the possibilities that this Congress could have and you know after the speaker vote and setting things up for the debt ceiling fight um, and then now going through appropriations so I want to hear from you um, what are your thoughts about how things ended up with the debt ceiling fight and then and then um, where do you think the appropriation what is if you had to give a prediction what do you think will happen with appropriations uh, I'm pretty down on where we are right now with appropriations um, I think there's a lot of happy talk a lot of what I call uh, managing the members from leadership perspective. Leadership has a view. It took me a long time of seeing it up close to understand what they meant by this. But they view fights. They want to manage you all. They want to take you and manage you away from the real fight and put you on the fake fight. And when they can't do that, they find ways to distract you and put you on hamster wheels uh, where you're just kind of running and running and running, but you're not actually impacting anything. And that's where I think we are in the appropriations fight. And it's a reason because I was very, very hot, uh, excited about what was accomplished in the speaker's fight. I thought it was transformative because you had, for the first time, House conservatives exercising unilateral power as a coalitional partner. No longer backbenchers, a coalitional partner. And that was ripped up in the debt limit deal really without folks knowing about it, but that was an assumption the speaker made. And he decided, I'm going to rule in majority with Hakeem Jeffries. And that balance has not been restored. And so that fundamental gap still exists that I don't think has been uh, addressed. And so, yes, on a bill-by-bill basis, there's been great work on the House conservatives to say, look, that's the that's the path you chose, so your life just got a lot more complicated, and you all have been voting against rules and things like that, which is fantastic. That's what he gets for that. But I'm not as excited that a House-passed bill that goes to the Senate will actually become what becomes law, because you don't have that ability at Rules Committee to be able to say, no, we're going to send it back to the negotiating table. So uh, I think there's a lot that you all are doing. The last week's was a great uh, set of events with regard to the amendments passed in the NDAA. I think the potential is still there to have a really meaningful fight, but I think you're going to have to really kind of rip off the Band-Aid and say to the appropriators, 
this notion that you're going to just draw down all of these prior uh, uh, Biden accounts called rescissions and count those as your cuts, that's not cutting a bureaucracy. That's funding, um, yeah. th that's cutting programs that were literally plussed up so that they could be dropped down. That's how this town works. They, they think ahead like that. And so uh, I think we're at this critical moment where, you know, you all are trying to get your mind wrapped around how to address that. And I think that's really important because otherwise you're going to go out and tell your constituents, this is this big fight. We're headed towards a shutdown. Um, I don't, I'm not in the business of telling constituents and you're not, you're not, they're not my constituents, the grassroots people that we work with, you know, this is a real fight like the, the McCarthy fight, like the debt limit fight. If it's not, and it won't be because you guys aren't. It'll be because Kevin McCarthy knows at the end, the car, I'm going to use cartel votes to get this across the finish line. And if we don't fix that, we're, we're going to be on a hamster wheel. And I think that's what we've got to, we've got to figure out how to get the cartel off of that so hamster So do you think wheel. we end up going to doing a, an Omni or? Well, he said today, um, he said, we're not doing an omnibus bill. And I replied, yeah, that's because you intend to do three omnibus bills. So one, I've heard this before, one in... One in September. It, well, or, you know, timing could be many different options. But the basic point is, okay, you don't want a big 1,500-page bill? You know, I'll give you three 500-page bills. Okay. But all of those, the, the point was not necessarily, you know, our, well, we, we, we want a, a different way of the United States Congress to actually make decisions on behalf of the people. And that is to have a debate about an agency and to really get into the weeds about that agency and what are the, who are the people that need to be defunded? Mm -hmm. And you're not gonna get into that with regard to this big uh, omnibus bill. So uh, I think we're at this moment where a lot of things could go well and a lot of things could go poorly. And you know, you wanted my honest assessment. <laughs> well, and I, I agree. I mean, when you look at uh, Limit, Save, Grow, which wasn't perfect, but it was a great piece of legislation. And we, what we ended up with was the fiscal Responsibility Act, which I call the Fiscal Irresponsibility Act, because like you said, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote savings are uh, projected. You know, they're not realized uh, immediately. It's over a 10-year period, and that's only if appropriators hit certain marks, which only are suge suggestions. And so anytime you're trusting government math uh, for future savings, I'm incredibly skeptical. And that was the beauty, beauty of Limit, Save, Grow, is that you captured a lot of that sa savings on the front end, yeah. So the American taxpayer was guaranteed that if we're going to save, pick a number, whether it's a, you know, a hundred million or eight hundred million or whatever, or billions or whatever, that it was a real number. Right now we're dealing with monopoly money and Common Core math. I mean, it's all it's all fiction. Right. Your and, House pass bill had a twenty percent cut to the bureaucracy, right. and to be able to fund veterans and other things that you care about, infrastructure, that meant Department of Education was going to get a 30% cut. That's right. And that's that's what you're talking about, that upfront savings, which was then you bank it in over 10 years and you have a, a game changer bill. Yeah. So what advice do you have for us? We're freshmen, we're just trying to figure things out. My, my view would be to have great skepticism with regard to anything that leadership <laughs> is asking you to do. I always had the approach, if leadership wants us to do that, we should take the exact opposite position. And I may not have all the facts at the given moment, but I know you're wrong. And the only time that's ever changed is in, in the aftermath for a few months after the speaker's fight. And that changed. And I used to tell people, well, now we're a little bit in a New Testament world because you're actually exercising power. So if you say it needs to be different, it will be different. 
We're now back in Old Testament world. We're drifting and so we, I, I would say you've got to, to know that they are a cartel. And the cartel only cares about political stability. They're trying to minimize political risk. They are not in the business of accomplishing policy objectives. They literally they don't, don't care. care about the policy. They don't care. And I think that's what's really hard medicine for people who come here, uh, and not necessarily you guys, but the, the, you know, the, the people who kind of go to the polls electing Republicans, and they're like, yeah, we got a new majority. They don't understand that there's really two types of members. There's just happy to be here caucus, and then there's the, you know, the, the fighters that are like, I came to change the country, and then right. I'll try to pick the, the, manage, the level of political risk that will allow me to get my policy objectives and get everyone making it politically successful. And but that, there's risk involved. We're not going to save the country without risk. And those of us fighters, we end up finding that we annoy the, the ones that just want to be here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to get a little bit uh, less serious and ask some funny questions. So, okay, um, what do you love to do? If you were to Netflix something or watch something, what, what's the series? Uh, it would be some kind of histo history. You know, I love Gladiator. I love Braveheart. I love those kind of things. Um, I love to read. I love to follow sports. Um, you know, I'm, as woke as they are, I'm a huge Yankees fan and, and uh, oh. NFL Giants fan. And so uh, I love sports and I love hanging out with my girls. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that fills my tank. If I'm reading, uh, it's never worked for me, uh, but it is what I, most interests me for sure. You got two sweet girls that are off camera. We haven't heard them break <laughs> in yet. <laughs> but, but yeah, th those love your life. Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, nine and 11 years old and uh, you know, so much fun. And, what are their names, Russ? Uh, Ella and uh, Porter. So oh, awesome. one's a, a, a shire and the other one's a firecracker. The youngest one's the firecracker. Oh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt about it. That's how it usually is. Uh, but before you land the plane totally, I want to uh, throw uh, a name out. Uh, Jonathan Jakubowski from Ohio. I know he's a good friend of yours. He's a friend of Eric and I's. And uh, you, I think you probably know Jonathan, too. Um, but uh, the first time, really, that Eric and I had ever been uh, with each other was a couple of years ago in the Trump Hotel, having a conversation, not political, faith-based. And Jonathan was involved in that. And then... Um, you know, soon after, I think both Eric and I got up here, he's like, you got to get, you got to get talking to Russ. You, you got to get talking to Russ. So, well, you know, I went out there and he's involved with a group called the forge and I gave a speech and got to know him. And thankfully I didn't, I didn't intend for this, but I spoke before him because you don't want to speak after Jonathan. You do not. <laughs> the guy's got the guy's right. founding father level talent. He is um, talent. And so, but he's a great, uh, a man of faith. It's been yeah. fun to get to know him and we're, you guys through him. You know, we started a Bible study that, that we're involved with and, and I get to stay up to speed. In fact, today on the plane, I'm reading about an organization he's leaning in on um, or, or a mission to try to stop in Ohio what's become a, a front-load mission of the left to try to bring abortion back in on these state-level ballot initiatives. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan is rolling up his sleeves and, and trying to, to be a leader uh, like he is in his state. Um, there's only 18 states that allow you to amend your, your constitution, your state constitution. And, um, and Oklahoma, sadly, is one of them. And so for those of you that have connections in Ohio, uh, hopefully you can change from my understanding. He's involved with the initiative to say, if you want a ballot initiative, great, but increase the threshold. 
Yeah. Uh, so many of the bad things that the left is, is advocating, and they're trying to do it through these ballot initiatives. And a 60 vote threshold, I think, is what they're trying to do in Ohio to try to stop trying to bring in uh, Ohio from a pro-life status to, to, to uh, pro-abortion. Yeah, they got two big votes: the August vote, which is on that yep. on that change, and then um, uh, in the fall on the actual uh, ballot initiative. So, uh, hopefully, the former helps them yep. uh, achieve greater. And it's really ground zero for the life debate. Yep. Uh, and Ohio obviously has turned very much much more red in the last fifteen years, and so. The left is obviously smart and always ahead of the game. Yeah. So for you Oklahomans out there leaning on your state lawmakers to get our, our uh, state constitutional amendments process changed to where these ballot initiatives can't wreak the havoc that they're doing, pretty sad. What is, do you, are you guys like that, where you can amend your state constitution yep. by a ballot initiative? You, you, yep. you guys in Tennessee so that way? Uh, we, we have a protract, protracted uh, process in Tennessee. It's got to be passed twice by the General Assembly. It, it, it's hard to change the Tennessee Constitution, but there is we're a process. Republic. We're a republic. We're not a democracy. And that's where so many people say, well, you, we're a republic. Right. And uh, when 18 states uh, can change their state constitutions. Um, yeah, that's in Missouri, we're, we have all this money coming in from out of state yes. to change our constitution. And it's awful. And it's also not necessarily... Some, like when you, I was actually reading an American conservative about the progression of the marijuana laws in Oklahoma. Yes. Which is you know, been, something that's passed initiative. in one generation, and then you see the fruits of it. And the reason we have these checks and balances in our system that take things a lot longer is so that you can figure out, oh, man, maybe that's not a good idea. But. So that, you know, absolutely the importance of some of these uh, correctives that would, get, would, would protect the ability of people to have some wisdom over time. Well, Russ, thanks for being a fighter. Thanks for yes. for renewing America. How can people follow you? Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so they can find me at at Russ Vote. Uh, the center is uh, americarenewing.com, and uh, we really are putting out a ton of stuff, even things that are not necessarily the fight of the day. Big tech, uh, trying to have an entirely different view on foreign policy. And our, our view is that uh, we've got to change these big paradigms. And once we do, uh, a lot of things can fall into place like clockwork. But you've got to have a fearlessness and a, and a, a, a worldview that allows you to, to go where the truth is. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, thanks for working with us, lowly freshmen. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Nothing for, like you guys are the freedom fighters, so I appreciate it. Thanks, appreciate thanks for it. jumping in with us. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all we have for this week's episode. Again, thank you, Russ, for joining us. And uh, if you like these, this show, please subscribe, please share it, and encourage other people to subscribe as well. Also, send us a question if you'd like us to read a question on air. Until then, we'll see you the next time on the Fresh Freedom Podcast.